Man, we have missed you guys. It's been a minute, yes. <laughs> I just wanna I wanna first apologize and say it's it's partially my fault. I am not gonna sit here and cherry coat or hide things. Um we were really struggling with some mental health issues and um we just needed a break. And I appreciate all of our supporters understanding that and Misa understanding that and just a reminder that mental health is serious and make sure you're checking on your loved ones and yes all those things um i'm okay uh you know it was just kind of like one thing after another um as you know most of our followers know i do have a separate job besides our amazing podcast um and it's been the last couple weeks were pretty hard with um you know all the gun issues in uvalde and um we just really hit close to home and uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate for people who are not in education, who don't realize um, how serious and how scary it is every day um, and what's asked of teachers. And then I also have kids who are in separate schools. So it was just, it was a lot. It was a lot. I'm not going to sit here and sugarcoat it. It was extremely hard. Um, and I know I shared with Misa, if you don't mind me sharing Misa, like, I don't think even parents realize or people who don't have kids realize like the drills that we practice to prep for an active shooter. Um, it's traumatizing. And in that moment, it's, it's just so much. So for people to just be like, just put more guns in there, give teachers guns. I teach in a high school. First of all, do you know how many unhinged teenagers there are? And you want to put a gun on a teacher? Like what if they attack a teacher, which has happened, uh, you know, what if it accidentally goes off mm -hmm. and then you're not going to sue the school? There's just so many other things that happen. And um, it's just, it, it really sucks. It really sucks. Yeah. And as, I know it especially hits close to home to you because you work in schools, mm -hmm. you work with children, you've worked with small children, yeah. you know, children that you hope to hear will graduate one day and those kids never will. And all I could think about after the whole shooting thing happened, which I guess I should be more specific, the Uvalde mm -hmm. shooting. Um, all I could think of was like all those parents who suddenly had an empty bedroom in their house. Yeah. And like that bedroom was just going to stay like that. Like bedrooms evolve as you grow up. Mm -hmm. You and I know that. Um, and it just kind of, it's really sad to think that those bedrooms are like forever frozen for like third graders. Yeah. Yeah, you know? I remember years ago when I actually first heard about intruder drills and I asked you about it because I didn't realize that they were yeah. a thing. And you were like, yeah, we do this and this and this. And, and Steffi said the same thing and it just blew my mind. And it like, whenever I hear about something like that happening at a school for real, I just think back to like my elementary school, which is actually just down the street from where I live. And 
you know, I went there for six years from kindergarten to fifth grade, and it never occurred to me that I wasn't safe. I felt very secure. My teachers cared about me. Like, you know, we didn't live in the best district and we didn't have all the money, but like, I know that those teachers gave a shit. And I'm so grateful that I grew up in a school that was safe enough to where like nothing like that ever happened. Not you know, the only drills we had were practice fire drills, which is normal for a child. And, and what the fuck is normal anymore? So it's, it's just crazy to think of like what what is deemed acceptable to teach children as opposed to just like, why don't we just teach adults to be better? Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, have different things in place for gun control. And I, I know that we all have different opinions, but um, here at Soundtrack City, we completely support um background checks for guns i we don't think that you know automatic rifles need to be in the hands of someone who just turned 18 there's no need there's just none um and i say this as an avid gun holder so and we have very strict rules with our guns gun saves everything and i know that i speak for me so like there's just no need for guns to have more power and people care more about being able to carry a gun than the safety of our children. There's just none. Mm-hmm. So, um, we just, it, and that's such a hard thing to, you know, take on. And then it's just like another thing happened. And then it's like Roe v. Wade happened. And it's just been a lot, guys. Like, I feel like everyone has just been hit like so hard. And the people who haven't, I don't think they're realizing what's going on in the world or they don't care. And I'm just here to say, like, even if you, even if you do not think that you will ever need an abortion, whether it is a spontaneous abortion, a medically induced abortion, whichever you want to call it, if it makes you feel better to call it something else, a DNC is an abortion, folks, get it right. Um, someone in your family line will need that one day. And they're not going to get it and they're going to die. Like, there's just no other nice way to say it. And at the end of the day, when we give over to the government the right to tell us to do anything like that, you are taking away that body autonomy. And before you know it, um, you know, they're going to be like, you know what, we're going to do psychological testing before you can have children and you are not deemed fit. So we're gonna sterilize you. Automatic vasectomies for everyone before the age of this. Like, are you willing to do that to your body? Are you allowing the government to do that? Probably not. So why should we allow them to force pregnancies on people who A, don't want them, don't need them, are gonna die if they continue with them? There's just, there's just no need, there's no need. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I could go on and on on my soapbox about ab- abortions because I, it just it irritates me so much that people are so uneducated about it and then want to spew all these things out. It's murder. It's really hard to hold my tongue. Understood. But hey, this is our platform, so you should say whatever you want. All right. Well, then I'm going to say it. I'm going to try to be as short and sweet as possible. Okay, guys? And if I lose you, I'm sorry. I still love you. Always. Um, And hopefully you understand where I'm coming from. Okay, so we're just going to go back really quickly and understand that our country was founded on religious freedom. We are not 
a secular country, meaning there is not one religion that is more important than another. So when you are making laws based off of your interpretation of an interpreted book that has been misinterpreted over and over and over because of loss of translation from language to language to language, you are then making everybody in this country follow rules based on your religious beliefs and not human rights. That is a problem. And if you really want to get down to it, because I am a Christian, God gave us free will. And when you take away that free will, you are not spewing Christianity love anymore. You are just forcing people to follow your mindset and what you think is right. And that is not what God wanted. God wanted us to love, teach love, and to give people options. It is up to them what they do with their body. Even if you know that you would never get an abortion, you do not get to decide what person A or person B does with their body. And God believes that also. And I'm done. Louder for the people in the back. <laughs> I can't say it enough. That was very well said. Very well said. Thank you. Hopefully I made someone realize. If not, please, please contact me on Hey Soundtrack City and I will be more than willing to talk to you about this further. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Frankie's ready for your questions. I sure am. Bring them on. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. Indeed. <laughs> Speaking of it being a while on Instagram, I do want to say, like, because I am the one who mostly runs it, um, that I've also been kind of, like, bad about updating it. It's just uh, part of it is, like, well, we're not really active audibly, so, you know, whatever. But then also part of it is, like, you know, the depression security blanket of just, like, well, I haven't said anything, so I might as well just keep saying that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, especially like I felt especially bad when, you know, Pride Month began and I kept telling myself like, oh, it, it, today's June 2nd. I should post something today. And then I did it. And then like the fourth came around, like I should post something today. You know, it's still beginning of June. And I never did. And like it just kept going like that. And I just kept telling myself like I should do I should post it. I should post it. And then I wouldn't. And I wanted to, but I just like didn't bring myself to do it. I don't know. It's just one of those things. And I hope you guys can relate. Oh, for sure. I feel like that is um, very much just like just anxiety and depression and feeling overwhelmed and like wanting to do things, but just not having that energy to do it. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, not to mention the fact that we are all collectively living through the trauma of COVID and idiot scales in the fucking oh. Supreme Court and oh, yeah. just... Yeah, all that dumb shit. But any Hooters, overall, we want people to be better, and we're also going to be better. <laughs> yes, we are. Our our hearts are in it. We may not always carry through with our actions, but we're working on it. And you know, we just appreciate you guys' patience and understanding, and know that everything we do comes from our heart. And so, there might be things that we miss, but we definitely are biggest allies, supporters, all of that. So, please know we love you. Indeed. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for supporting us. And you will hear more from us soon, hopefully. Again, you know, this is a fun spare time thing that we do. And summer is hard to to, oh, yeah. to get spare time for even each other, <laughs> for non-podcast yeah. things. 
<laughs> it really is. Um, but yeah. So whenever we do get that spare time and our, our schedules align and the planets are all lined up perfectly, we, <laughs> we, we will be active on the podcast. Halloween's going to come up soon and we love spooky season at Soundtrack City. Oh, yes. And hopefully we have some really cool stuff going on at uh, Comic Palooza, and that kind of helps us pick some awesome movies geared towards that. It's going to be super exciting. So lots of fun movies coming in the future for sure. So last time, you know, a couple, uh, we won't talk about how long ago it was, but we picked each other's movies and we gave each other options. Um, and Misa gave me two really amazing movies to choose from, um, The Tenenbaums and Little Miss Sunshine. Both are amazing. I watched them both several times and I just felt like I was really driving with Little Miss Sunshine. So that is the movie that I picked for this week. And I'm super excited. So I'm going to go ahead and get into it. Now I'm going to ask for your apologies because I do kind of have, this soundtrack is kind of a mix of, you know, um, like actual tracks as well as some score type songs. Um, however, they're not really scores because it's not an orchestra. It's like a, a weird quirky band that plays lots of instruments. <laughs> So <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot, but it's a great soundtrack, a great movie. Um, I remember, oh gosh, watching this movie. Um, this was one of the first DVDs that I actually bought because I was so intrigued by the cover, just the bright yellow and them running like into the RV. I was like, oh, what's this? So I was really drawn to it. I love this movie from the second I watched it. Like everything about it is just perfect. It describes this amazingly dysfunctional family that's trying to get together, going on a road trip. This movie came out in 2006 and it was the feature film debut of the husband wife team, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Barrett. This movie was written by Michael Arndt, who we know from like Toy Story, Star Wars, etc. Um, and he wrote this movie after listening to a clip from like Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I know is a fun fact, but I wanted to share it now if that's okay, um, about how society is made of like winners and losers. He felt like that's really not a good mindset like either you're a winner or a loser and going from that and then like hearing how he was talking down about like the people who lose he was like you know I could write a, a script about this so he did um and I I really really appreciate some of the things he said about how even though you may lose like you're still not a loser and so that really stuck with him especially him being an underdog which is another way that I would describe this movie. Back to our amazing movie. Um, it was debuted at the Sundance Film Festival on January 20th, 2006. And it had really, really good reviews. And after the festival, it did go ahead and go on to the wider release in August 18th. Um, it was filmed on just $8 million. 
but it did really well. It earned over 101 million and it was praised for its performances, direction, screenplay, and that dark humor. We love that dark humor. And I think that's why I was feeling it, Misa, just because it was a really dark time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and, and there's parts of this movie that just like absolutely reflected my life and what was going on. And so it was just, it was, it was a great choice. Um, it was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and it won two for Best Original Screenplay for Michael Arndt, and then Best Supporting Actor for Alan Arkin. Um, he was an amazing part of the cast and some of our other cast that I'm sure people are definitely going to recognize. We have Abigail Breslin as Olive, who is our like main protagonist. Um, super cute, adorable. Then we have um, Greg Kinnear, who plays her dad, Richard. Paul Dano, love me, Paul Dano. Mm-hmm. He's just so amazing. Uh, as her brother, Dwayne. Um, again, Alan Arkin plays Richard's father, or just known as Grandpa. Tony uh, Collette. Oh, guys, I can't say enough about her. We know she's amazing. I don't. I don't think there's a bad movie that she's done. If I'm being honest, I mean, she's such an underrated actress, in my opinion. Yeah, I've seen campaigns online for like, you know, give her the damn Oscar and shit like that. Yeah, like I mean. She is phenomenal. I mean, from from the sixth, I can't speak. The sixth, oh my God, say it for me, Nisa. The what? The sixth sense. I couldn't say oh, it right. The, I thought that's what you were going to say, but I, I wasn't sure. Yes, I, I always forget that she was the mom. Yes. And I, I mean, I loved her in that. And I know it was such a like short scene and like, Definitely a supporting actress, but I mean, even that, she did phenomenal. Uh, and you know, it, like, I, that was one of the creepiest parts to me. Um, I loved her in the movie Knives Out. I mean, she was in The Hours, which is like a period drama. I, I absolutely love that movie. Also, she was in like action movies, Shaft. I mean, she's, she's amazing. She's been in TV shows. She's been on Broadway. Like, there's literally nothing this lady can't do. Mm-hmm. Love, love her. Love her. Um, and she's phenomenal in this movie. And then we also have Steve Carell as Frank, which is part that Tony plays Cheryl. It is her brother. Um, and of course we know Steve Carell from The Office. Um, he's been in several like Dr. Seuss movies, Horton Hears a Who, Evan Almighty, of course. But I'll be honest, um, I love him as a dramatic actor. And I know that he, uh, he really had to fight for this part. And I loved the decision that they went with him yeah I'm I love this combination of people as these characters anyone different would have just thrown it off balance I feel like we talk about all the time how different the movie would be if just one person had been casted differently yeah absolutely absolutely they did great and um like I said they they definitely even though they did miss out on some of the awards um this movie was nominated for so many different awards just because it was so well received it was nominated for 112 different awards from academy bafta screen actors guild you know afi all of these movies all of these different um areas and it won over 72 different awards so 
if that doesn't make you want to see it, I don't know what to tell you. It's it's an awesome, awesome movie. Um, and I definitely think it's one that everyone can kind of relate to. And I think that's why it's it did so well. Definitely. there's. A, I think everyone has a character that they can like latch onto. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my sources before I begin, um, IMDb, Mental Floss, Screen Rant, Useless Daily, Discogs, uh, Wikipedia, The Take, Who Covered, Slash Film, and YouTube, as well as graduateway.com. So lots of different sources coming at you. All right, so let's jump into this movie, guys. So this is a dark comedy, like I said, and this movie is about a dysfunctional family, Um, and Cheryl finds out that her brother has attempted to commit suicide, and so she is seen on her way to go to the hospital to pick him up. And at the same time that we see her like driving frantically, we see her husband, Richard, who is trying to sell a self-help book. And he's over here talking about the nine steps, you know, to be a winner. Um, And we see that he's like believing it really into it, whatever. He thinks that he's this great person. Then we see Frank, who obviously has committed suicide and he's just looking very forlorn, looking out the window. Um, we see Dwayne who is silently lifting weights and we see Olive who is reenacting the emotions of like Miss America when she wins the pageant. And when we pan out, we see that Olive is not exactly what America deems as Miss America material. She is this adorable little seven-year-old with these giant round glasses um she's got just long stringy you know brownish hair and she's a little pudgy um and she is just so into these awards and just adorable um but again it's quite obvious from this beginning that none of these people are really doing well in life like a family who they're obviously a family but everyone's kind of off on their own as well so they're they're not on the same page yes oh great way to say it great way to say it um the the only duo who I will say is that we do see grandpa who um when we first open up he's doing um heroin in the bathroom but as we move on I will say um the grandfather and Olive, they're kind of like hand in hand together or they're working together. So the, that would be the two that I would see like together. Their relationship is the cutest. That's probably the one that I, I, I find the most like heartfelt. I mean, they all have great relationships and dynamics with each other, but seeing her with him, especially that one scene later when they're at the hotel is so sweet. So sweet. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh. Gosh, yes. Agreed. We're going to get to that because that one is like so emotional for me. Um, So anyways, we see that Cheryl goes to pick up Frank. Obviously, he's committed suicide. Cheryl's the only family. So she's bringing him to the house. We see that um, she is frantic and obviously overworked. She's like earlier in the scene, she's like smoking a cigarette and you hear her say, I'm not smoking and she throws it out. Um, So obviously stressed. Everyone comes to the house and it's kind of, you know, just a, a middle 
middle American house or whatever. Um, there's stuff everywhere. We see Richard come in and he immediately checks the answering machine. And we learn that he is trying to sell his self-help books and he's waiting for Stan Grossman to reach back to him. Um, and while he's checking the messages, Cheryl's getting dinner ready. She takes Frank to go into Dwayne's room. And this is where we learn about Dwayne, Paul Dano again. Ha, huh, gorgeous. Um, even here, love him. He's like scrawny, dark haired, teen, angsty, and he has taken a vow of silence. So we see Frank introduced to, again, or reintroduced, I guess it's been a while since you've seen him, to Dwayne. And then we see all of the family coming together to eat chicken. The fucking chicken. It's always a fucking chicken. Dude, no shit though. This movie, as soon as it starts, I want a bucket of fried fucking chicken. Tell me, who who was there? That's what I didn't look up. Who was their food person? Because all of the food from this to the diner looked so good. The chicken, oh God, looked delicious. So we're sitting down chicken. Yeah, mm -hmm. fried chicken. Way to go to my heart. So obviously grandpa's not happy about the fried chicken. We see like everyone, all of us super excited to see Frank. And this is when everyone's kind of like catching up on what everyone's doing. Well, Olive, being the sweet little girl that she is, notices that, you know, Frank has bandages. Um, and Richard tries to automatically, you know, like change the subject. But you know, Cheryl's like, you know, if you're okay, I'm okay. She needs to learn about it sooner or later. And that's where Frank talks about, you know, like how he was really upset and he tried to kill himself. And she was like, oh my God, why? And this is where she also learns without really learning um, that her uncle is gay. Um, and of course, Richard was like beyond himself. And I love how Cheryl and Dwayne and all of them are just like, you need to shut up and just like, let, let, him talk and olive is the most adorable person as she's listening and she's like genuinely worried and everything um we also learned that olive has been working on her regional pageant like her talent part um and during this we get told by richard that there's a message from cheryl's sister come to find out cheryl um sister lets her know that olive actually got second place in a contest when she went to go visit family. And so this prompts the whole family to go to the Little Miss pageant competition. Of course, it's happening that weekend, you know, movie magic in California. And the whole family end up having to go together because, uh, you know, Richard needs this car and Cheryl decides she can take off, but they can't leave Frank by themselves and they can't leave Grandpa by himself. And um, so this prompts that. Now, Cheryl does have to ask Dwayne because he immediately writes no. And she begs him. And then she also promises him that he can go to flight school um, because that is what he's working for. He's made that vow of silence to go to flight school and be a pilot. Um, and he writes, but I won't have any fun. And as he writes that, we get our first amazing song. Chicago by Sukhan Stevens. All right, so Sukhan was a little hard to find info on because he's not, um, 
And I apologize, some people say Sufjan, Sufjan, it depends. I want to make sure I get both out there for my uh, name Nazis. But um, he was a little difficult to find a very, like a lot of information on. So forgive me, I'm going to definitely try my best though, okay? Um, so Sufjan or Sufjan Stevens, um, he is an American singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist. I would definitely say that he's better known as a songwriter. He has received Grammys and Academy Award nominations for his songwriting. This song was on his second album, the 2005 album Illinois, which hit number one on the Billboard Top Heat Seekers chart. And um, it went on to be, of course, in this movie. And um, it did get him an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song. Um, I will say this video is definitely one that I recommend checking out. It's like super weird, lots of instruments, very, um, what's that, that um, Holly, Holly Spree Harmonic, remember that band? Polyphonic Spree, um, this video reminded me a lot of that. It's very, how do I say this, culty? <laughs> Electronic Culty, really cool song. Sufjan um, has kind of been around for a while um, as far as writing songs. Um, he likes to put like that kind of spirituality that he has. He is the founder of, I don't know how to say this, I apologize. And when I looked it up, there was uh, discriminatory things like how to say it, Subud, which is an interfaith spiritual community. And it's his parents are Armenian, so I'm assuming it's kind of like an Armenian interfaith spiritual com community. Um, and he likes to definitely bring that sound into his music and his videos and his writing, if that makes sense. So this song, um, the lyrics are very much fitting for what is about to happen. It's about a young man who goes on a road trip and he's got this like youthful, like, idealism and hopes for everything. It's just a very hopeful song. Um, this is one of his most popular songs, like I said. It is one that was nominated, and this is how he usually ends his live shows. Um, there is a YouTube video that I can also share with you to add to the blog because um, he's pretty good live. I, he's really cool, actually. Um, so definitely check that out. Yeah, and that's pretty much all I could find on the song. Um, but it is a great way to segue from the family going from, you know, the dysfunctional dinner, cursing, suicide, all of that at one dinner. And then we've got this really like funky, hopeful song in the back, letting us know we're going on a road trip. And Dwayne adds to this by writing Welcome to Hell on his notepad. And then everyone is seen getting in this adorable yellow mini bus. And we are on the road. Moving right along. So we are driving a little bit and then the family does go ahead and stop for breakfast. Um, this scene is actually really, really sensitive to me. This is a hard scene always for me to watch because I'm not gonna lie, um, Richard is a really hard character for me to like. That's the dad at the beginning um, until the end. I do like him at the end, but in the beginning, he's he comes off very arrogant. He's constantly like talking to Olive. Like at breakfast, she wants pancakes, and then she gets them all emoji. 
um, you know, what's in ice cream. And then he goes on her about, you know, what's in ice cream. And then he talks about how none of Miss America is fat. And I hate that scene. Um, because growing up, I was constantly told those things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really hard for me. And I love how the rest of the family does like hype all of up. They're like, oh, well, I'm going to eat your ice cream. And grandpa's like, don't listen to him. I love women with some meat on their bones, you know. Um, and Cheryl just looks at Richard like, you dumb fuck. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard scene, but it does show how her family like really does support all of minus Richard because he's all about his winning and everything. Um, so after we eat breakfast, the family gets back into the van and Cheryl's like, you know what? I need to learn how to go ahead and drive the van because it's a stick shift. And so we see Richard teaching her and he's like, you just push it down. And she's like trying it. It's a total reenactment of how my parents attempted to my mom learning how to try to drive stick. And it was a horrible, horrible thing. She ended up on a curb. There was like a tire half off the car. I don't even know what happened. It was a lot. (laughs) It can be challenging at first if you're not comfortable with it. Yeah, yeah. Misa drives stick, so uh, she's a real one, guys. She's a real one. Yeah, collar (laughs) shot collar. (laughs) So, of course, the stick shift breaks. So the family has to push the van over to the uh, mechanic shop, and the part can't get in because it's the weekend and so this is when the guy um at the mechanic shop lets them know you know what as long like as long as you have it kind of facing downhill you guys can push the van get a running start and then jump in so this is what the family decides to do this is the first real time that we see like all of them together so it's a very cute scene richard is in the front getting the car into neutral and then everyone's at the back pushing and then we see them one by one jumping in they're laughing they're like grabbing each other it's a great scene and this gives us the foreshadow of our song first push which was by divachka So, Devachka, I'm only going to cover this one time because they do sing several songs in um, our soundtrack. And this is kind of that weird instrumentalist, sometimes we've got vocals, sometimes we don't band. So, Devachka is an American four-piece multi-instrumentalist and vocal ensemble. Even though their name is Russian, they are actually from Colorado, Denver, Colorado. Um, It is comprised of four people who play an amazing amount of instruments, some that I didn't even know existed, okay? So there was, there's one called uh, the theremin. Do you know what that is? No. Yeah, neither did I. It's a weird, like, electronic music instrument that looks like a box, and it's sometimes called an etherphone or a termina box. And it basically just makes like weird electric signals, but apparently you got to know how to play it. So food for thought. Um, He also plays guitar. He plays piano and trumpet. Um, We have violin, accordion, piano, sousaphone, double bass, flute, percussion, and our um, bass trumpet. So lots of instruments going on. Kind of very polka sounding, if you will. Um, And you definitely hear that kind of polka vibe in their songs. 
So First Kush is one of their original songs, and they were actually um, asked to write some of these songs specifically for the movie. They were reached out to by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who are actually, I guess, really good, really big fans who happened to see them in Colorado back in the day. Um, and so they did go ahead and write some songs for the soundtrack, which I thought was really cool that they got reached out to, even though, you know, they're not as big and out there like some of the other bands we know. Mm -hmm. um, so this song does not have words, but it is a instrumental piece only. It is a four on the floor, which is a term that drummers use to keep a steady beat on the bass drum. Um, the acoustic guitar has very like Southern cowboy vibes and this repeats. Um, there are bongos in this song that add just a little bit of flavor and then they drop out and there's a very um, focused whistle. And that seems to be kind of the centerpiece of the song. The bass drum continues to keep the pulse while the upright bass is being played. There's a crash cymbal and this sound, um, it's kind of off, like it doesn't fit the beat. And this is kind of when they're running and having to figure out how to jump in, which I thought was timed perfectly. Um, after whistling, the song kind of adds like an Asian, Egyptian um, sound. And this is due to the uh, suspended pentatonic scales. And there's the flute layered with the keyboards. The violins come in also and sound super dramatic and kind of out of place, which to me fits because we see this family who's obviously super dysfunctional, but having to work together to get the car to go. You know what I mean? Um, and the song intentionally, after researching, has so many layers because Devachka really wanted to show all the different pieces of the family and how they had to work together to um, to make the van go, to make the scene work. And that's done in this song also, all those different pieces moving together to make this really cool song. So yeah, so that's our first um, Devochka song. And again, that was called First Push. Um, so after we get the van going and everyone's kind of like on this family high, you know, um, they were able to work together to get the van going and um, Frank, you know, no man gets left behind, no man gets left behind, which is funny because someone does get left behind in the future. <laughs> um, and, you know, everyone's just even even Dwayne, who you've seen has been very sullen and obviously silent is, you know, kind of enjoying himself. Cheryl looks happy. Everyone looks very happy. Um, so as we see everyone in the van, we are looking at the, um, what are those called? Oh my gosh, the mile markers? Yes, there we go. The mile markers, and it shows that they have about 600 miles before their next stop. Um, so we see, this is a really sweet scene. Everyone is kind of taking in the scenery, playing, doing like road trip things. Um, the highway is even called Carefree Highway, which I thought was obviously super intentional. Um, listening to Arndt talk about this, this scene is really full of metaphors in the filming. Um, you know, they're working on puzzles together. They're playing together. It shows a happier functional side to the family when they're kind of removed by the everyday nuances. As the family is doing all of these happier things together, we get the song, No One Gets Left Behind by Devochka. Um, this song is actually played twice 
um, once as the family is doing this, and then again when the, um, they're at the gas station. This song is written as a swing song, so it's in 6-8. The guitar carries the melody, and the harmonica and the accordion are the main focus in this song, and it gives it kind of that aged polka-y feel. Um, it's a very quick song, so there's a lot of quick transition. The trumpet harmonies come and also carry a strong presence toward the middle and the end. And these trumpets kind of sound like when you have the fanfare in um, like a kingdom, like someone fancy is coming. Do you know what I mean? And it's very kind of like that sense of accomplishment, like maybe after a war has won. This song does have very little percussion. There's no drums in the song, but there are like egg shakers um, or some kind of like similar percussion keeping the tempo. There's also these really cool bells that provide an, a pretty undertone and are, I'm sorry, and are accenting the downbeats of the melody. Um, the song actually appears to have like a couple of mess ups or like that they, they uh, maybe messed up when they were taking that uh, recording, but they sound intentional. And the way that Arndt described this is that it makes it sound like that dysfunctional family can be functional. And yes, we have those kind of little slip ups, but when we, again, all work together, we can be a very functional family unit, which I thought was just so intentional. And you know how I am about those intentional songs and those intentional meanings behind things. So like that to me was like, oh, I love this song now even more. Yeah, it's just, it's a great song. It's a great scene. And then, of course, we see, um, you know, Richard starts to tell Frank about how he started his self-help and life coach. And this is when we kind of see that unraveling, which makes sense also to kind of those mess up um, parts in the song. Um, and you can tell Frank and Richard have a strained relationship. Richard is very full of himself and he thinks he knows better than everyone. Um, which again, I think is why I don't particularly like his character. Frank is definitely more relatable. And yeah, and so Frank starts to give him sarcasm. And then Richard, of course, goes into like, that's a loser thing. You know, they keep going back and forth as they're kind of discussing that. And then Cheryl finally calls them to stop. So after we have no one gets left behind. Um, we pull over to the hotel for the evening um, and we get the three rooms. So grandpa's with Olive, Frank is with Dwayne and Cheryl is with Richard. Um, there is a little tension because Richard has gotten told by Stan Grossman that basically his book is not going anywhere and they were really counting on that money. So we see them arguing. Um, Olive is practicing her routine with grandpa. And, you know, Frank and Dwayne are doing whatever Frank and Dwayne are doing. This is when we get such a, a, a great scene between Grandpa and Olive. And I didn't cover any music in this scene, but I, I did want to talk about it because it, I think this is such an emotional scene for everyone. Um, Olive, at the age of seven, eight, she is terrified of losing this pageant because her dad, she hears him constantly berating losers and he's you know, his book is how to be a winner and like, you know, winners don't apologize. That's a loser thing, blah, blah, blah. And she's crying to her grandpa about how I don't want to compete because if I lose, 
dad hates losers and she's literally bawling. And grandpa says one thing that just like always sticks to me. A real loser is someone who is so afraid of not winning, they don't even try. And that is just such a powerful quote. And, you know, he hugs Olive and tells her that she's beautiful because that was the other thing that she was worried about, about not being pretty enough. And he's like, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. And it's just, it's a really sweet, sweet exchange. Um, so Olive goes to sleep. Grandpa goes into the restroom to, you know, do his nightly heroin. And then in the next morning, when Olive tries to wake up Grandpa, he's non-responsive. So she goes to get her parents. Well, come to find out he uh, did, I guess, a little bit too much heroin and he did die in his sleep. So now the family has to handle the death of Grandpa on top of trying to get to Little Miss Sunshine. And I know it sounds really ridiculous, but it's actually pretty funny. <laughs> um, and lighthearted, at least in my opinion. You're sad that you've lost this character, but you're kind of losing them in the best way because of the way they handle yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and like you said, just the way he went out was the way he would want to go out. He, he wanted to do what he wanted. And he was very clear about that, you know. So um, the family does, you know, put him in the van and then they take him to the hospital. And, you know, they're very upset because obviously grandpa has passed. Um, but then they learn that it's kind of a damper in their plans. This really wasn't on the schedule. <laughs> it <guys>. wasn't. Um, <laughs> so Richard's like, can we leave the body here? We'll go to this pageant and then we'll come back. And the nurse representative is like, absolutely not. <laughs> like she freaks out. Um, and so basically the family decides, you know what? We're, we're going to kidnap his body. And they put it in the van and they uh, head back on their merry way. <laughs> can I, can we talk about this for a second though? Yeah. 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 Okay. Because when this scene pops up, like, obviously, they're in a rush. They need to be at this place by this time, and they're not going to, you know, they only have so much time. Right, right, right. And I'm just thinking, like, did he have to tell her that they were leaving? Couldn't they just, like, couldn't they say, like, okay, give us a moment. We're going to deal with this and then kind of scamper off for a few hours and then come back and just not <laughs> tell her they were going to leave? Or, like, at that point... Since they were already so close, couldn't Frank just go ahead and stay with his dad and then, like, the rest of them go? Because, like, really, Grandpa wanted to be there because he trained her. Right, 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 right. And Frank Frank wanted to go because of whatever, the car or whatever. So, like, well, at that point, you know, I mean, it, I just felt like it, it works out much better for the film and comedically for them to have stolen the body. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> stolen the body and put it in the trunk. But for a split second there, I'm like, there were other ways to do this. <laughs> Not in the moment. That was it. That was the only option that made sense to steal the body. But what would you have done? Would you have done the same? Would you have stolen the body? Absolutely not. Because, <laughs> well, first of all, my mind goes to like transporting a body is illegal. First of all. Second of all. 
they had, okay, I don't know what kind of hospital they went to, but no hospital I have ever gone to has actual opened windows. Oh, yeah, and I love how they just happen to be on the first floor. Right, right, which, again, I don't know any hospital that has that where you're in a bed on the first floor either. Mm-hmm. So my mind would go to that. Now, in, in frantic moments, I I probably would have just left, um, you know, r- written a letter, we'll be back, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> you know, my apologies. Um, but instead, uh, this family, you know, wraps grandpa up in a sheet and somehow magically gets him to the car without being spotted. So, yeah. Um, and at this point, the van has just kind of started deteriorating for real. The horn is constantly going off. Again, the clutch is still broken, so they're having to, like, push the van. They do end up getting pulled over in a scene um and so the family kind of has to play that off thank god uh frank had bought porn before so they were able to play that off with the porn um and there was some gay porn in there too and the cops like oh i don't know about this one (laughs) dude this fucking scene fucking fuck no matter how many times i watch this movie because at this point the horn is going off and the horn the horn won't stop and then the fucking cops it's just one thing after another and then frank's like okay everybody just act normal and it's like yeah the horn is like the most awkward horn it's like and then and then frank is just saying all the wrong things he's like please don't open the trunk he's like sir you just gave me reason to open your trunk he's like please don't please don't do that it's yeah. totally legal he's like sir you need to get back in your car and he's already back there and like he's going through the porns and he's like oh yeah i like this one yeah i like that blah blah, blah. he's like oh my god the fucking cop and then i love i love when he's showing he's like sharing it with frank he's like oh yeah i love that stuff and frank's like oh it's yeah. so sweet all american sweet. <laughs> yeah that's great. And then there's the one game, like, game porn, and he's like, I don't know about this one. <laughs> and oh, then, my God. I, then I love it because he's like, this no, scene. not that one. <laughs> Completely ignoring the body. Yes. 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 Oh, my it. God. It's so it. fucking funny. This scene is so good yes so good so good so good so this this happens and uh then as we're continuing to drive closer to california this is when olive does the color blind test um for fun she just happens to have it to do with Dwayne and frank we see them getting closer to the destination and olive and Dwayne are kind of entertaining themselves during this part um doing like a eye test and while they're doing this, Olive gives him a colorblind test, and Dwayne learns that he is colorblind. Frank is like devastated immediately, and then Dwayne is like, What? on his notepad. And Frank tells him, You can't be a pilot if you're colorblind. And Dwayne immediately has like the most intense meltdown and like you feel his meltdown and his pain through this scene because Paul Dano again amazing 
he starts like banging on the top of the car, freaking out, shaking the seat in front of him. And then like Frank's like pull the car over and Richard's yelling and Cheryl's like pull the goddamn car over. And, you know, um, I'm sorry, Dwayne is trying to like jump out of the car and finally they, they pull over and then you see him run out of the car and then he just screams, fuck, but obviously much better. I'm not gonna, and you know, <laughs> I'm not gonna do it here. <laughs> but it's it's such a it's such a heart wrenching scene to watch. Um, and as he is, you know, getting all these emotions out, and then they're like, "Come on, we gotta go." Like, I'm so sorry. He's like, "I'm not going anywhere with you. You guys are fucking losers. Like, divorce. You know, no job, suicide. Like, he basically goes off on his entire family and." he doesn't want anything to do with any of them. So the family's just kind of all waiting by the van, um, not knowing what to do. And Olive goes down in her adorable little outfit, not Miss America outfit, like red boots, red like those um, legging type shorts and then like this weird shirt. And she just kind of kneels down by him and Dwayne's like, all right. And then he gets up and he goes. And it's just such a sweet moment between them. I really do love their relationship. Um, and so we have to do the running again and we get back into the car. And this takes us all the way down to our hotel where Olive is expected to be there by 2 o'clock to sign in for her Little Miss Sunshine pageant. So we barely make it to the hotel in time. And guys, by this point, like Misa said, this van is barely hanging on okay like I'm surprised the doors are still on there for now uh they have to come to a rolling <laughs> a rolling stop they have to do like all these crazy turns they miss the exit barely make it they're technically five minutes late um and they do get some mouth about signing in but luckily someone you know kind of takes pity on them and they're able to get all of in there as they're walking around Dwayne and Frank are like what the fuck Richard goes and sits down in the actual auditorium and he's watching the host who can we just talk about how a like he's a fucking creeper the host is he makes me uncomfortable every time I watch this movie he's he's yeah he's weird yeah he's like an older man who is just having the best day of his life at a little girl pageant it's just too much for me so anyways Richard's like what is happening in here all is getting ready and obviously she is not the same as the other contestants these girls are in full makeup spray tans huge hair fake teeth full makeup huge like big flouncy dresses and everything Dwayne and Frank have to walk out because they're like what let's get out of here what the fuck is happening they leave all of course is still getting ready and they decide, um, hold on, they come back and uh, Dwayne goes all the way back to the room and they're like, are you supposed to be back here? And he's like, no, and then keeps walking. <laughs> and um, he finds Olive and he tells his mom finally, like, I don't want her to do this. Like, this place is fucked. There's so many people here. Like, she's not going to win. She's going to get made fun of. Um, Richard comes in at the same time and he's like, I just, I don't think she can win this. Like, they are completely doubting her. Um, Cheryl pulls him aside and he's like, you know, Olive wants to do this. She believes in herself. This is what she wants to do. 
And if she wants to do it, we have to support her, like regardless of what the outcome is. And I love this mentality because this is what Michael Arndt was talking about. Like so many people are unwilling to try things because of that fear of losing, that they miss out on so much, so many opportunities. All of this determined to go on. So it is her time to go. Now, remember, none of the family has seen her routine yet. And boy, is it good. (laughs) So the family all takes their seats. Olive gets on stage and the uh, MC uh, asks, like, give to the microphone. And she was like, I want to dedicate this performance to my grandpa who taught me these moves. And he's like, that's so sweet. Where's your grandpa? In the trunk of our van. Holy shit. That is a Frankie's daughter moment if I've ever fucking heard. Like, honest as fuck, just uh-huh. super blunt. In the trunk of our car. A hundred percent. And she says it just so like, smile, like that's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his face is kind of like, what? It's so fucking funny. And then it gets better. Rick James, super freak, starts playing. All right, so Super Freak, obviously. I don't I don't really feel like I even need to talk about the song because who doesn't know this song, right? Mm-hmm. Who doesn't know Super Freak? An amazing song by Rick James, who we all know as an American singer, musician, record producer. He was raised in New York. Um, he became popular um, in the band that he formed, The Minor Birds, in 1966. And he did receive a Motown Records deal from that band. Um, He did have to kind of stop his music because he was in the U.S. Navy Reserve. And so he kind of bounced between both of those for a while until he finally was released from the military. And he moved to California where he started a variety of rock and funk groups in the 1960s and early 1970s. Um, He had most of his really big hits in the 70s and 80s. Um, from You and I to Mary Jane. Um, His most successful album was the 1981 Street Songs, which did include Give It To Me Baby and Super Freak. Super Freak became his biggest crossover single because it did have elements of funk, disco, rock, and new wave. He also um, had a really soulful voice. This Super Freak does not showcase that as much, Um, but he does have some ballads in there as well. And um, he was really good friends with The Temptations, Eddie Murphy. Um, um, at the end of his life, though, I believe that he was most known for, you know, The Chappelle Show. Because Dave Chappelle um, introduced him into a series of skits with Charlie Murphy, where he did show up until his death in um, 2004, where he died at the age of 56. Um, due to heart failure from drug overdose. Um, So he did have his battle of health issues, but he um, definitely had some great hits out there. And um, Super Freak did earn some awards for um, the the best R&B song in the Grammy Awards. And it is also one of the songs that most people recognize as being influential funk song um so yeah and this song 
I don't, I really don't know anyone who doesn't know this song. I can't think of anyone. Um, and he said it came to him as just kind of a joke. Um, he used it as a sexually like promiscuous, adventurous girl. Um, one of my favorite lines is she's a very kinky girl, the kind you don't take home to mother. Um, and like I said, it was on the list of the most influential songs of all time from Rolling Stone, ranked at 477. Um, they redid that list in 2010 and it was number 481. And they just recently redid that list and it is now 153 out of 500, which I think is awesome. Wow. Yeah. So definitely moved up. And I do think it's again because of just all of those elements, um, you know, in the song. Um, it has been covered a couple times by different people. Um, no one that I really knew. Um, Big Daddy, The Membranes, a um, couple instrumental covers from Beat Freaks, um, the United Rhythms of Brazil. Mostly, though, um, it was featured in You Can't Touch This by MC Hammer. So people know parts of it from that, and they do often get it confused. The most notable one, though, would be Richard Cheese with his piano elevator take on the song. Um, and, guys, this song does not disappoint. Olive's dance routine to this song is amazing. She's in this top hat and this, like, wonderful, like, jacket. And she throws the hat off and she takes the jacket and she's, like, wagging it on her butt and she hits her butt. The audience is appalled her family is like what is happening <laughs> and the um oh my gosh I forgot her name the uh lady who's in um Donnie Darko um who plays the like I guess she's like the pageant manager she's like get her off stage now and so she tells the DJ MC to grab Olive. And this is when we finally see a Richard who I like. He's like, don't touch her. Don't touch her. And so he gets on stage and like, he like bucks up to the MC and he's like, well, you need to grab her. So then finally he starts dancing with Olive. And this is what prompts Frank and Dwayne and Cheryl to all get on stage and dance with her. And can we just say, I love Dwayne's dance moves to this song. It is just like no fucks given, adorable. Everyone is just having such a good time dancing to the song. Olive doesn't even really realize that like everyone in the audience is like, what the fuck is happening? Because she's basically doing like a kid strip tease to the song. <laughs> but the family is having a great time doing it. Song ends, the audience is silent. Except for this one biker dude who's like, yeah, and claps. I'll wait. <laughs> and he's like super psyched by their performance. So then we see the family sitting outside the police station window. And um, we hear the police officer say like, you know, they're not going to press charges as long as you agree to never put your daughter in a pageant in California ever. And he's like, forever. They agree, and so they get their stuff, and they start the van up, and they're getting ready to roll out and push the van. Um, by this time, Grandpa has been picked up by the, um, I guess, a funeral home. 
He doesn't really specify, but a funeral home. Um, and as they're all jumping in the van and getting ready to leave, they break like the the guard arm, the little like white and red. What's that called? I I don't know what to call it, but it's like the automatic arm that lets you in and out or whatever. Yeah. Okay, that. Okay, so as long as you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, of course, the van doesn't have brakes now, and uh, the horn is going off, and so they break that, <laughs> and um, they are just having the best time ever, and they roll out, and the song by Devachka, Till the End of Time, takes us out. Um, and this song starts with that whistling again, and it immediately comes in with a crash and a snare that is accented on the one and three. Um, this song is also in six eight, which makes it have like a very swingy sound, so it makes you naturally want to kind of sway to it. It's a very upbeat song. The bass has a cool one fourth note pattern on the intro, and then switches to a different pattern that carries its own melody, while also accenting the snare drum. So we hear that very kind of uh, think like college football where that snare is very high and you hear like a marching band type snare, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the guitar is keeping just a constant up and down strum. It's a really pretty song. This song does have words and there are quick harmonies only on certain words. The strings had a really pretty texture and it gets very fast towards the middle of the song. And then the playing has difficult arpeggios. Um, they add different bells but the bells are in a minor pattern and that makes the dark song sound very pretty um and it's just got a great message about loving someone till the end of time which i think is the perfect way to end little miss sunshine because despite their dysfunctions and their disagreements they have each other's back till the end of time and that is our movie yay that was awesome yes, and if it's okay I would love to share just a little bit of like fun facts or some random things that I found out you know I love when we talk about like people who were supposed to play the characters um and I do want to say that they already had Paul Dano like signed on two years before production even began which I think is awesome um they automatically um won a Tony Collette. The person who was of most interest, though, was, of course, Frank. And that is Steve Carell ended up getting it. But it was originally written for Bill Murray. Ew. And I can't imagine that. I don't I don't think I would have liked it. And the studio was really, really pushing for Robin Williams, which we love Robin Williams here at Soundtrack City, but I just feel like it would have been so different. So I feel like with Bill Murray, because you hear so many awful things about him all the time, mm-hmm. um, I just, I feel like there's a there's a certain purity that comes through with this combination of people that would not have come through all the way with Bill Murray. Ooh, well said. Like the family dynamic mm. would be totally off. Right. Like, and even so, like, you, you look at these ensemble movies where it's like a small cast, tight knit, little space, and they're all together most of the time. And if they're not all together, they're breaking off into smaller groups of themselves. And so what makes the family work so well in this movie is that 
I think that the cast got along really well. They did. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know more about this movie. Oh, than they absolutely did. I watched all kinds of like interviews and like this family, like Paul Dano and Abigail Breslin are still friends to this day. Like they celebrate birthdays together. Like it was like they were really brother and sister. Like the whole cast got together and did things and they were just like a tight knit family for real. Yeah. And see, and that shines through in the film. You can tell when a cast is like, meshing well because they mesh well even when the cameras are off and I get that sense of family from these people and to think that like Bill Murray would have been a component instead of Steve Carell it just makes me feel like well a they would not have gotten along as well they would not have been as tight-knit of an ensemble as they would have liked Mm -hmm. and it just it would have offset that like I don't know just like the the comfort level yeah I thought that was a really cool fact, and I'm really glad they went with their third choice, Steve Carell. (laughs) Um, There are some scenes where um, Alan Arkin is using a lot of profanity. Um, They actually did make sure that Abigail Breslin um, Olive was not able to hear any of these scenes, and so she had headphones on or earplugs in for these scenes, which I thought was super cute. And I'm, you know, for her age, Alan Arkin did really snort something in those scenes in the bathroom. What they did was give him crushed up vitamin B tablets, which I thought was really cool that they made him like have him actually snort something. Michael Arndt almost didn't get to write this film. He had to quit his job as Matthew Broderick's assistant in order to write the film. And then after he wrote it, he was fired and then rehired by the studio help produce it and make it come to life wow I know isn't that crazy that's awesome so that lesson learned take your chance exactly exactly um there are actually four additional endings that the um the directors thought of um the one that I like the best is they actually steal the trophy and then they run out of the hotel and say, we're losers. And then they all laugh and leave. Um, one of the other options is where they're kind of sitting at a park talking about grandpa. But it just seemed too like pretty and clean and neat for the ending of the film. So they decided not to go that way. Um, there's another one where they show an ending of um, Dwayne and Frank kind of like surfing and kind of like out in the streets of California And then they go back to the hotel and they all just kind of leave and walk out. Um, And then there's another one where they kind of get stuck in like a revolving door. Um, So yeah, there's four different options. I really, really enjoy the original. I do like the one where they steal the trophy though. The movie, part of the inspiration was um, the broken van actually did happen to Michael Arndt and during his childhood with his family on a road trip. So that was taken from real life. And um, there were two characters, um, Stan Grossman and the state trooper, who we both made fun of, were actually a part of the Breaking Bad series, um, and then Better Call Saul. So this is actually kind of like a prequel to those. So yeah, and um, the only other cool fact um, that I thought was really interesting is, even though this was Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris's first movie they actually directed the 1979 smashing pumpkins video and they made sure to pay homage to him by having frank's purchase of porn come to 1979 
Oh, I see what they did. I love those little tidbits. And that's it for me, guys. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed Little Miss Sunshine as much as I did. It's a great movie. Wonderful soundtrack. And just, I think, a movie that everyone can relate to in some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, that's it for me. On to you, Misa. Yay. Awesome job, Frankie. Loved Thank it. Thank you. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. <clears throat> so, it's my turn now. And uh, Frankie gave me three different options. And it really just came down to process of elimination when I chose the one that I did. Um, okay. Just because, well, uh, Drive Me Crazy was an option. And even though she gave me her blessing, I, yeah, A, I think that soundtrack is way too massive for one person. And B, <laughs> I, that's something that we've, we had planned for a long time to do together. So I wasn't going to take that away. Um, she also suggested kids, which I started to watch with you once when you were at the old apartment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I never finished it because I didn't like it. So oh, okay. I'm sorry, hon. I didn't realize. Nah, it's fine. I just it it really wasn't it wasn't a vibe for me. So the movie I decided to cover uh came down to uh being the eighties flick written by John Hughes. And directed by Howard Deutsch, not John Hughes. Um, released in 1987, known as Some Kind of Wonderful. I love this movie. I was, I was, and I, before I go on, I was going to ask you, just how much do you love this movie before I talk about it? <laughs> um, I mean, I love it for what it was at that time. Obviously, I don't know if I would love it the same like if it was released now. Um, I just, it was always one of those like perfect eighties film, like fall in love with your best friend. And like, that's what I wanted. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah. And you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes Frankie and I are not only on the same page, we are the same fucking word on that page when it comes to certain movies. Okay. <laughs> sometimes. Frankie and I may be different heights, but we see eye to eye on shit. Like, like we are not seeing eye to eye. We are one eye together. <clears throat> I love it. And I have to preface this by saying that before she chose this movie for me, I had never seen it. Oh, really? No. Oh my gosh. Okay. Now I'm so, ex I'm so in into this now. Tell me everything. Okay, so I remember when we recorded the teaser and you chose, and this was the third choice that you gave me. And, and I already knew by the time you gave me the third choice that that was the one I was going to do. Um, like you said, so kind of wonderful. And I immediately, my mind immediately went to, he's just not that into you. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, yes. Okay, this movie has like a pivotal point and is even shown in. He's just not that into you. Uh, because the main character, Jennifer Goodwin, who I admit, her character kind of reminds me of you, Frankie, just a little. Yeah. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, she is obsessed with this movie. And so if, as soon as you said the title, the, I didn't watch the movie immediately. I watched He's Just Not That Into You. And then I watched Some Kind of Wonderful the next day. <laughs> I, love, I love it. 
Because there's a scene in uh, He's Just Not Into You where uh, Jennifer Goodwin is is watching some kind of wonderful. And it is a scene that I'm actually going to talk about. Um, yeah. And she's reciting the lines along with her. Something about Amanda Jones is no something, something for your amateur lips, something, something. Like she knows the words. Mm-hmm. She's saying it along with as she's eating ice cream. And... Um, it's adorable. It's it's every movie goer with their comfort movie. And so eventually, like, she's trying to figure out her love life. And so she she starts to assume that the guy that didn't show up at the date, it doesn't exist because the guy who's setting her up with him actually really likes her. So she's convincing herself of this in her head. And she's like, oh, so that makes me Eric, that makes me Eric Stoltz. And he's Watts. And I was like, what does this mean? Yeah. <laughs> I had never seen this movie before. And then, so of course, as soon as you said it, you know, it was all just kind of connecting. So anyway. I love it. And before you move on, I do want to say total, total honesty here. I almost picked, he's just not that into you. It was between these two. I was like, because I gave you, I don't know if you realize, I gave you like several different emotional type movies because we were both like all over the place. Um, And I really thought that, like that would be a great one, but I remember that the line from there, and I love this movie because it is such an '80s film, and John Hughes. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna go with this one. So that makes me, I, I, I really love it. This, this is totally a Frankie movie. Yes, it was not a Misa movie. Oh, sorry. It's okay. I, I, there are redeeming qualities. It's just well, one. I kind of swore off love stories four years ago. So this was kind of um, ugh, uncomfortable okay. to watch people fall in love. And I'm just like, okay, cool. Even the fictional characters get to be happy. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, uh, yeah, this chick flicks really just don't, they're not on my scale. Still recovering. If you know okay. Right. I understand. I understand. Um, so there were parts of this that were hard to watch, <laughs> I um, but uh, you know some of the music was good, and that's what we're here to talk about—the music, really. Uh, overall, <clears throat> I could go on, but I don't want to rip this movie apart. Uh, but it's not—it's—it wasn't for me. However, I am absolutely in love with Eric Stoltz now. <laughs> he is so cute in this movie yeah like I don't know every now and then I come across a redhead and I'm just like smitten I told you about the cowboy in August you sure did yeah oh my gosh (laughs) Eric Stoltz is actually super fucking precious in this movie I the only other movie I'd seen him in and you know sorry to say it was the butterfly effect oh, yeah 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 <laughs> he's a fucking child molester yeah. so anyway this was a nice switch isn't he precious oh my god he is so unbearably sweet of course they give him like the worst fucking foil like hardy is the like the boyfriend <laughs> from midsummer seems like a fucking angel compared to this dumb fuck <laughs> idiot oh my god come stain like Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. Yeah, I, I mean, you're 100% correct. Like, Midsummer looked like a saint compared to this dude. Dude, and it, it bugs, it just bugs me, like, watching these characters get manipulated by this person who is clearly lying. I mean, look at his yeah. shoulder pads. He's just full of shit. 
he's full of shit. And I just, oh, I couldn't stand him. I could not stand him. Like the regular, like, I mean, it was the entire school. Like everyone was wrapped around this dude's finger and I don't get it. Dude, for real. Like how much power did he really have? Mm -hmm. What was his dad like a concert promoter or something like, like who on cares? fucking supreme court or something any hooters so of course eric stoltz does play our lead and his name is keith and um he's an artsy kid kind of quiet kid and um this somehow translates to him being known as like the school weirdo yeah it's an interesting plot device just because the 80s movies about teens it, it makes everything seem so clicky I guess because my high school experience wasn't necessarily, like, the same. Uh, I just find it interesting that, like, okay, this group kind of isolated. Like, kind of like Mean Girls, I guess, also. Um, but, like, the group kind of just isolates themselves to, like, only their type. Or, like, even 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah, I was going to say that. Or even, like, I'm going to age myself. Kind of like High School Musical. Like, how everyone sticks to oh, their yeah. own crew. You know what quo. I mean? Yeah. 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 Like, you can't intermingle. It's not allowed. <laughs> Exactly. And it's it's such a high school movie trope. I don't know. Um, but so Eric Stoltz is like the artsy kid, super sweet. Uh, Leah Thompson plays Amanda Jones, who mm-hmm. um, I wasn't familiar with the song by the Rolling Stones. So when I heard it playing by the March Violets, uh, while ah. she's like coming back from gym class or whatever, mm-hmm. I, I wrote in my notes, does Miss Amanda Jones have her own theme song? <laughs> I love it it's odd to see her playing a high school girl because to me she just always looks 36 no matter what Um, yeah isn't it but you know um Mary Stewart Masterson plays Watts uh she's Keith's best friend super tomboyish and secretly in love with him oh yeah well not so secretly I mean she is pretty obvious but he's just like kind of like clueless it's totally clueless like it's like she is it's everything everything she does I'm just like how did you not know man come on for reals for like when he was like oh who have you ever loved and she didn't answer it's like dude yeah it's you (laughs) obvious come on guy come on for reals um Craig Sheffer who I guess I would consider more of like discount David Boreanaz um I can see that a little bit, right? He plays Hardy Jens, yeah. a super asshole, ex, like boyfriend, whatever, ex-boyfriend, boyfriend, whatever he is in this movie. Um, I love Elias Katias as skinhead. He's so fucking funny as the bully. Mm-hmm. He's great. He his, Some of his scenes and lines are my, like, his line is my favorite that I cracked up the most at. I love when him and Keith are in detention and they're sketching. Mm-hmm. And the bully holds up the drawing, like the camera sees it, like it's a close-up of it. And he says, this is what my girlfriend would look like without skin. He's such a comedic relief for me in this movie. Like, I know it's like a funny movie anyways, but he just adds like that extra layer of comedic, like perfect timing. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. He's so fucking good. He's so fucking good. It's great. And totally out of left field, like totally unexpected for those moments, but they work and it's phenomenal. It's great. It's hilarious. Um, so that's our basic cast. Some of my sources before I go on include Wikipedia, ericstoltz.net, 
uh, Video History Shows channel on YouTube and IMDb. Oh, as well as some um, behind-the-scenes commentary and video from the film. Mm-hmm. So, um, the movie opens with a drum track, and we're introduced to these characters. Not a lot of talking, but, like, we have Watts kind of at her drum kit. We have Eric Stoltz's character. He's a mechanic. Um, And then we see Amanda Jones with her boyfriend, and they're obviously, like, about to fuck. And then we see them Mm post-fuck. And uh, Keith happens to walk by while the boyfriend's leaving, and... He's just kind of staring, standing very obviously out in the open <laughs> where she could totally see him, but somehow does not. Yeah. And um, we we can see just from this context, like, he likes her. Uh, but we also get the feeling like she would never give him the time of day because, like, there's obviously, like, a class difference there. Yeah. Um, I was going to say that that's one of the things that was really hard the only thing that's really hard for me during this movie is like like you were saying like the kind of that like a socioeconomic class difference that like socio kind of economic class too that you feel towards like when you see some of the characters and you see like their outfits and their attitude and everything about like you know the the blue collar dad and the difference for like going to college or like going for business like it's uh that that is a little hard like the social standing you know what I mean mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah 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 and I think that that's something that like that's one of those things that the audience can connect to with some of these characters yeah Uh, because even Amanda Jones is kind of like a a farce of herself because she's not actually super high class or rich she lives actually pretty close to Keith exactly and and she borrows jewelry from friends yes and to like what extreme you go to to belong it's 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 really hard in high school. I know we've talked about that in the past with other movies that we've covered, um, but I feel like it was a little bit more blatant in this movie, if you will, like to the extremes that she would go, like you said, and borrow things and like not steal per se, but you know what I mean? Like the the, the fraud. And so it's it's frustrating to like watch her have to uphold that image, but like it, you know, she wants to run with a certain crowd, so she's going to do what she can to run with that crowd and, you know, keep up this particular mm-hmm. reputation that she has to build for herself and that's fine um but so but she's much more along the lines of like Keith's class like Keith you can tell his family doesn't make a lot of money they don't have a fancy house they don't live it doesn't sound like they live in a great neighborhood or area um you know very close to railroad tracks which you know I yeah. think generally how neighborhoods near railroad tracks don't have great reputations. Yeah, I feel like that's in every movie, right? And I didn't even think about that, like the correlation between that, like, oh, you live by the railroads. Yeah, because that's how he gets home. That's how he's like walking, like that's on his way. Yeah. Um, even my grandma on the east side, like where there's considered ghetto and like the houses are on cinder blocks right next to a railroad, which you hear all night. Wow. Yeah. I've never like put those together. Yeah, so... But it's even in, like, West Side Story. Exactly, yeah. So, like, there's bits of context that will show you, like, this is what Keith's life is like, and this is how it contrasts between, like, what Amanda makes her life out to be. And therefore, they Mm -hmm. would not go well together, or at least that's what they make you believe. We see Eric Stoltz walking home, and he comes home to his little sister, who is a pre-Full House Candace Cameron. Very Mm -hmm. Um, and then he sees his dad who you can tell like his dad, blue collar man sitting on the couch and 
pressuring his son to pick a college. And so then Eric Stoltz walks into his room. And upon entering, his little sister, Laura, is rummaging through his vinyl. And he's like, what are you doing here? And she looks at him and she's like, I'm looking for the song about the guy who killed himself over the girl who hated his guts. And she's super casual about just like being in his room without his permission, rummaging through his shit. And he is like upset about it because it's like, well, have you, do you know the meaning of privacy? Yeah. Non-existent. <laughs> yeah. And she does not give a shit. And so like she has a vinyl in her hand. He snatches it from her. He like grabs her up and takes her and puts her out of the room, like drags her out. And um, as she's being dragged out of the room by her big brother, she says, oh, is this a side effect of being massively unliked? And so, again, there's more clues as to, like, you know, Keith doesn't belong anywhere. People think he's weird. Like, nobody likes him, da-da-da-da. And so from this scene, we kind of get an idea of what his relationship with his sisters is like and his family and his dad. And, and so the next day, we see Watts and Keith going to school together. They run into the bully. They have a little exchange there. It's really funny. I love when the teacher busts him. He has, like, naked girl playing cards. Yeah. And the bully's like, oh, that was a gift from uh, your wife. <laughs> <laughs> he has the best lines in this film. He really does. He He's really great. Does. He's great. <laughs> and so we see Eric Stoltz in the library sketching. And it turns out he's sketching Miss Amanda Jones. Which None is of kind it. of an unsafe situation because her boyfriend is sitting right across from her and he notices. Mm -hmm. And he's not about it. And so we also see like throughout the day that like Hardy cheats on Amanda Jones. Mm -hmm. Like he talks to other girls and like he kisses them and says like wants to go over to their house and you know he uses trust to manipulate them. And then when Amanda Jones, I'm going to call her by her full name the whole time, by the way. <laughs> when Miss Amanda Jones <laughs> catches him at, at her locker with another girl, she barely gets a word out. And he's like, how can someone so beautiful be so insecure? Don't you trust me? And I'm just like, oh, my God, punch this man in the face. Yeah, the gaslighting is 100% going on. It is awful and she she believes that she puts up with it and it's just so fucking dumb yeah she's um, like oh i guess you're right like no sir no and then of no. course he manipulates her and he, you know he gets his way because he's mm -hmm. him and i think he also he in the movie at least twice he holds it over her head that like you will be alone if you're not with me yes yep you'd be nothing and and it goes back to the social circle because Hardy is probably, I would say, dare I speak, like I think it's fair to say he's probably the richest boy in school. Yes, I would I would venture to say you're correct. Yeah, and so like the fact that he's with Miss Amanda Jones really gives her like a status. And without him, she's just going to be some forgotten girl from the slums just like Keith. Or and at so, least that's what she's led to believe. Yes, like she thinks she's not going to have friends. She think you know, da, 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 and that's not what she wants. And so she's just kind of, she's just kind of got this own conflict of her own going on. And so we see the way he treats her and it's shitty, but she puts up with it because whatever, you know, rose tinted glasses. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. our very first song that I chose 
comes in uh, in this next scene. We are at Eric Stoltz's job where he is a mechanic. And Watts, at first I thought Watts was a mechanic with him, but it turns out, no, she's just hanging out at her friend's job. Like, <laughs> she's just with him. Which is so awesome. It's awesome, yeah. And during this scene, Do Anything by Pete Shelley is playing. And so Watts is sitting there with her drumsticks and she's drumming over a covered car. And Eric Stoltz tells her like, hey, don't do not do that. That belongs to the owner. And she comes over and she's like, I actually really love this little exchange that they have. She comes over, she says, how's it feel to be underneath a real Mercedes Benz? <laughs> and he says, about the same as being under a Ford. <laughs> and I love that he says that. Like, a car is just a fucking car. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's all the same under all that stupid paint and tint. Like, I don't understand why people get so invested in cars. It's just a fucking car. It's not meant to last. Exactly. Especially nowadays, they're not. I mean, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. They depreciate right away. And he's 100% correct. I mean, they're still made of the same thing. Half of them have the same engines. Like, if you open up, like, a GMC, that's going to have the same engine as a Chevy. You know what I mean? Which is also going to be in, like, other cars. They have multiple things that have the same. It's it's really frustrating that people don't understand that. So then they're talking, and he says, can I ask you something? What do you think about Amanda Jones? And she's like, oh, I don't think about her much at all. <laughs> and he's like, well, I think she's interesting. And Watts has one of the, I think, one of the best lines in the film. She says, don't go mistaking paradise for a pair of long legs. Hmm. And she says, he's like, what does that mean? She says, it means don't go roaming where you don't belong. So even she brings up the class thing. Yeah. He, uh, she ends up saying stuff like, she talks down about Miss Amanda Jones because she, A, I don't think she likes her at all. And B, I don't think she likes that her best friend that she's in love with is asking about her. Exactly, yeah. So she she's very put off by it. So she says really resentful things such as, the way this girl and her big money, cruel heart society spit on everyone is not interesting. It's pathetic. Yeah. And Keith tells her, he's like, well, she's not big money. She lives by us. <laughs> so even he knows that it's kind of a facade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he, of course he notices that because, you know, he pays attention. And that's why Watts, like, doesn't care and doesn't realize because she isn't even willing to give Miss Amanda Jones the time of day because she's intruding on what she wants, which I don't blame Watts in this moment. I don't either. And and it's not even just like a, oh, don't you see this girl is way more perfect for you? But it's also like Amanda Jones barely knows you exist. You don't know anything about her. You're idolizing this image of her that you've seen from afar. Mm -hmm. And Watts already knows you better than Miss Amanda Jones ever will. Don't hate me. Actually, I don't think you'd ever hate me. <laughs> so this scene, as I watch it older, it makes me think of that Taylor Swift song. It's like the best friend is, oh my gosh. Okay, I don't even know because I'm not a huge Swifty fan. 
But the one where she's like, the girl is the cheer captain. I'm on the bleachers. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's in, you know, like, I know you better. And then you're still with this girl. This scene, if I, like, as I watch this movie when I'm older, I always picture that song in my mind. That is actually a really perfect pair. Like, if someone was to make a montage with an updated song, they should take clips of this movie and put it over that song. Right? You're welcome, whoever does that. (laughs) Yeah, I will admit, like, I really haven't listened to Swift since that song. Um, But I I remember the lyric, like, she'll never get your humor like I do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. She ends up saying that, you know, Miss Amanda Jones runs with the rich and the beautiful, which is guilt by association. So fake it or not, she's still, like, a part of them. She makes an effort to be a part of them. She makes a choice. And so then, like, Eric Stoltz is just like, oh, forget about it. Forget I asked, whatever. And he just wants to change the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't want to hear anything bad about it, you know? Yeah, exactly. So a little info about the song. Uh, this was by Pete Shelley, who was a punk rock, new wave, and power pop musician. He played alongside acts such as The Adored and Buzzcocks. When he was with The Adored, he played with Steve Diggle, who played guitar, and Howard DeVoto, who was lead vocal. And then he went on to form Buzzcocks, which was a punk rock band. And that was when they were all attending school together. Um, So Shelley played guitar. Uh, The three aforementioned were founding members, along with John Maher, who played drums. Okay. Um, According to the book Buzzcocks, The Complete History by Tony McGartland, their first act as a band was opening for the Sex Pistols. Okay, that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Um, So Shelley eventually took over lead vocals when Howard left. They released a few albums and singles, but by 1981, the band dissolved due to an issue with their record company. Uh, So Pete Shelley began his solo career. But in 1989, he actually reunited with the Buzzcocks, and they toured and recorded together again. Not a whole lot of info. Yeah, I was going to say, but so uh, there's like a couple names in there that I know for sure this man is name dropping. The others, uh, congratulations on your career. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that he was apparently like in a punk band, open for a punk band. This song does not sound punk. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly... When he went solo, his sound, you know, I mean, which you would expect, like, you know, like Rob Thomas, when he left Matchbox 20, he did like kind of a pop, uh, what would you call it? It's kind of like, um, like, what would you call like Gavin DeGraw? Uh, That's how I, like, that's where I would categorize Rob Thomas. Okay. Okay. Or like, I even think of like Gwen Stefani, like she went from No Doubt, which was kind of punk rock-ish and then she went on and did like kind of hip-hop-ish yeah yeah would you say yeah I I mean it was still pop but she was she was a different pop yeah it was a different form of pop but even that no doubt was very like ska based you know yeah yeah and so So it was a very different sound yeah agreed it's really cool to see like and also kind of like dabble in different things you know Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm So that was my first song. And then right after that, um, Watts tells Eric Stoltz, like, oh, you don't make enough money to get her attention. 
And he says, well, you can't judge a book by its cover. And she says, yeah, but you can tell how much it's going to cost. Her and her one-liners, man. It's so good. Like, zinger after zinger. And he looks at her and he says, that's deep. And she says, if you want shallow, call Amanda Jones. But, but, like, yeah. Oh, again. Like, I just watched a murder. (laughs) She wasn't even in the room. (laughs) Ooh, man. Watts does not like Miss Amanda Jones. Treading on her territory. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. She said not today. (laughs) She said not today, not ever. (laughs) Um, and so uh, this literally, I speak of the fucking devil, Miss Amanda Jones rolls up with her boyfriend in his super pretentious car, and he's being a total dick to Eric Stoltz, making him check the oil, check the tires, fill it up, blah, 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 treating him like shit, dropping the money on the floor purposely. Yeah. And yeah, I hate that- it because, like, Amanda Jones is like, oh, stop partying. He's like, why don't you shut your mouth? Or, like, why don't you mind your business? And it's like, bitch, you need to get out of the car and walk your ass home. Yeah, I would, like, especially when he throws my on the floor, I'm like, you are so fucking rude. Like, for what? Privileged ass motherfucker. So annoying. Yeah. So annoying. But what's interesting is as the scene is happening, and I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to go into the song now. But a signature song from this film is actually playing on Hardy's radio in the car. So this is one of the first times that we hear it. But I'll elaborate on it a little later. Um, so the very next scene is when Amanda, Miss Amanda Jones gets dropped off for gym class because she presumably skipped class to take off with Hardy somewhere. And we hear the March Violets cover of Miss Amanda Jones, which is one of my honorable mentions. Good choice. And this is the part where I was like, does she get her own theme song, Miss <laughs> Amanda Jones? My goodness, Miss Amanda Jones. I love it. <laughs> I like saying Jones. her name. Amanda Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I, I kind of like this part because Eric Stoltz is watching her from the bleachers, like out on the track and stuff during gym class. Mm-hmm. It gave me Grease 2 vibes when uh, Ooh, Michael mm-hmm, when Michael is first like not first seeing Stephanie but like he's watching her watch other bikers like on the track yes I I got those vibes and it really made me like that scene like it, just from the Eric Stoltz end I don't really care about Miss Amanda Jones but then <laughs> she ends up getting detention she gets out of detention by flirting with the teacher but Eric Stoltz I know, it's so weird. Eric Stoltz purposely gets detention, hoping to spend time with her, not knowing she got out of detention, so he ends up stuck in detention with the bullies. Of course he does. So that happens. And so there's a few more exchanges between Eric Stoltz and Watts, and she just doesn't understand what he sees in Miss Amanda Jones. And so we get to this scene where uh, Miss Amanda Jones and her friend Shane are like out, like hanging out or whatever. And she spots Hardy with a girl again. And she's had it. She's like, I'm really done with this. Like, you may be man, you're not man enough for more than one girl. Damn. And he's, oh yeah. And he's doing the whole manipulative gaslighting thing, whatever. And then she's telling him, like, she's done. She's done. And before she can really, like, complete this little breakup scene with him, Eric Stoltz is calling her name from across the street because he can't fucking read the room. Yeah. Like, come on, guys. 
And so she runs across. She's like, what do you want? And he's like, oh, I was wondering if, you know, if, if it's okay. I mean, I know you're going through a hard time right now. Like, you're literally watching, watching her go unfold. through the hard time. And you're at, she's like, what do you want? And he's like, well, I was hoping I could take you out sometime. And it's he's so cute cring- during this. It's a, it's a cringy scene for me because I'm like, oh, not the right time. Oh, I know. Okay, the timing is bad, but the way he's asking is so cute. Oh, yes, exactly. And I'm like, if you had just asked a little bit, like, later, Later? like, swoon instantly, you know? 100%. But because you asked right during this, I'm like, no. Yeah, like, dude, they were literally in the middle of the breakup conversation. Can she finish her conversation? Yeah. So anyway, she's like, you're asking me out on a date? He's like, yeah. She's like, okay, yeah, I'll go. And she says it loud enough to where, like, everybody can hear it. And so when the friend is like, what did he say? She's like, he asked me out. And she's like, what did you say? She said, I said yes. And she, like, says it, like, right in Hardy's face. And he, of course, is pissed, even though, like, I think the new girl is still, like, right next to him. Yeah, it's it's whatever. And so the very next day, Eric Stoltz can't stop smiling. And so now they're going to go on this date. He's building it up in his head. He's building it up in his head. And it turns out like Miss Amanda Jones was just saying that because of what happened with Hardy. Yep. And even though like, you know, like Shane keeps telling her like, well, you should tell him like, you know, you're not actually interested in him unless you are. And Miss Amanda Jones has a little smile on her face because maybe she does think he's kind of cute. But, you know, again, they don't really know each other very well. But I think she likes the fact that, like, someone besides Hardy is interested in me. Someone besides Hardy will be interested in me. Yes. Kind it's of like thing. reaffirming that, you know, she could get someone else, you know? Right, right, right. Um, and it's so cute because he tries to, like, give her a ride home in Watts's car, which, by the way, not okay. Right? Yeah, no, that crosses a line. And then I'm pissed because I'm like, how dare you treat Watts like that? It's kind of shitty how he kind of uses her. But then, like, okay, like, it's shitty because of the way he uses her if he knew how she felt about him. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. But because he's so fucking blind and clueless and sweet... You know, he thinks she's just being his best friend when she has these certain quirks about her and says certain things. Like, you know, she's, oh, man. It's painful to watch him be like, I want to take Miss Amanda Jones home. Can I borrow your car? Yeah, and And she's like. You see her face change. Yeah, and she even makes one of their friends, like, pretend to be her boyfriend or pretend to, like, adore her just so, like, Keith can get jealous, question mark? Yeah. And he just kind of looks at them funny because he's like, that's odd. But I don't think he really cares, you know? Yeah, not to the extent she wants. It's a, it's, that one's kind of an awkward part, too. Exactly. It's funny, though, because she's like, pretend that you really like me. He's like, not a problem. <laughs> the guy is so, Ray, he's really funny because she's like, Ray, this is 1987. Did you know that a girl can be whatever she wants to be? And he goes, I know, my mom's a plumber. <laughs> She's like, that makes a lot of sense, Ray. It's so fucking good. <laughs> so any Hooters, he can't give her a ride home because Watt's car won't start. So they end up giving him a ride home in Shane's car. And Shane tries to open the opportunity for Miss Amanda Jones to break off the date, but she won't do it. 
And Keith is like, well, I really, I'm looking forward to it. If you don't want to go, then you can just tell me. And she's like, no, no, it's not that. And so she just kind of keeps egging him on and letting him have these high expectations for this date. My next song comes in when we see Keith early at, like at school early the next day and he's painting something. Um, and we don't exactly see what he's painting yet, but we will mm-hmm. later. And as he's painting, there's a really cool song playing on his like radio. I think he's playing like a cassette, which is so cute. Um, I know. I love it. This song actually gives me like the national vibes, honestly, like the vocals and the sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is Brilliant Mind by Furniture. It plays very briefly. And the reason why is because as he's painting, Hardy comes in and he turns it off. Such a dick. I hate him. Um, I hate him too. Um, but it is, a, I like that song as a whole. Definitely go, watch, go Definitely go listen to it as an entire song. I wish they had, they had played more of it in this movie. But this song is by Furniture. It's a new wave band hailing from Britain. This song was featured on the album The Wrong People. And the album was released November 10th, 1986. Furniture's Wikipedia needs work, guys. <laughs> so if you are a furniture fanatic, please feel free to visit their Wikipedia page and maybe fill in some of those blanks and unverified sources because this was a little hard. I did, however, find some info. So let's get into it. Um, Discogs describes them as a pop band active from 1979 to 1991. Members of the band included Jim Irvin on vocals, Tim Wellen on guitar, Hamilton Lee on drums, and Sally Still on bass, and Maya Gilder on keyboard. The band found most of their success in the UK. They formed in 1979 in London. Jim Irvin and Hamilton Lee started the group. In 1986, they released Brilliant Mind. The song made it to the UK singles charts, peaking at number 21. To date, this is Furniture's most successful song. The follow-up, Love Your Shoes, was also destined for greatness, but sales did not reflect it because their label at the time, known as Stiff Records, were Hmm. unable to cover the cost of pressing enough copies of the Wrong People record. Oh, wow. That sucks. Yeah. They were able to fulfill demand, but then they went bankrupt after that. Another label called ZTT picked up Stiff's clients, but they chose not to release any copies of the wrong people. So by the time they released a new album under a new label, which was in 1989, their momentum had been halted for too long, and it resulted in a disappointing album reception. Mm-hmm. And as the band made plans to release a compilation album of their past work in hopes of getting the attention of another major label, legal issues arose with the former record labels under which many of their songs were produced. Oh my god, these guys can't catch a break. They did not catch a break, so instead they broke up. Oh, that sucks. They were just they they were just kind of fatigued by all the all the bad luck, which I mean, eventually you get to a point where you're like, this was not meant to be. Yeah, yeah. It's just like I've gotten way too many signs. 
you know, way too many things telling me that this is just, it's not going to happen for me. Right, right. So, sad story about that band, but great song. So, go appreciate what they did release because they deserve a lot more recognition than they got. Cannot wait to hear it on the blog. Cool, cool. Okay. So, uh, right after he shuts off the music, Hardy kind of gaslights Eric Stoltz into coming to the party. And he's like, oh, bring Amanda with you and da-da-da. And Eric Stoltz is like, well, I, you know, I'm suspicious about this. And he's like, well, what? If anything, I'm the one who looks like an idiot here because you're the guy who stole her from me and I'm inviting you to my party. What's the problem? Do you have an inferiority complex? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Slap this boy twice. Someone, someone do something. Man, it's someone. And it, what annoys me even more, Eric Stoltz is like, okay, I'll talk to Amanda about it. And Hardy's like, I already talked to her. She's fine with it. No, he did not. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Eric Stoltz believes him. Which I never understood. Like, why of any people would you be like, oh, yeah, he's totally trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, it doesn't really seem like Eric Stoltz and Miss Amanda Jones are communicating a whole lot with each other leading mm-hmm. up to this date. So, like, why couldn't he just go up there and be like, Hardy told me that he talked to you. What? No, he didn't. Oh, solve that problem. Yeah, exactly. I just, it annoys me. I don't know. Whatever. Hardy is just the worst. He's the worst. Oh, and then he makes Eric Stoltz feel bad about not owning a suit. Yeah, he sure does. I can't talk about him anymore. Let's move on to the next song. He's a which crappy person. He is a crappy person. And so, of course, every 80s teen romance film and every, I guess, teen drama romance film in general has a theme song, a song that is always permanently going to be associated with that film. When you hear it, you think of the film. And this movie, while it is called Some Kind of Wonderful, that would not be the theme for this movie. But what is the theme for this movie, which is um, the lyrics that fit the situation and also the song that plays a couple times in the movie, is Turn to the Sky by the March Violet. So we get this scene where uh, we are at a club and we see that this live band is performing and it is the March Violets and they're performing this song. Uh, and, you know, a bunch of people are dancing. It looks like a super cool club. Like, it looks mm-hmm. like a cool place to hang out. Like Yeah, for sure. I would have definitely loved to go there with Nisa. For, oh, man. This is exactly the kind of place that Frankie and I would have been found at and picked up by a random person and then dropped off randomly and then not remember how we yeah. got there. Yeah. So any hooters, we see Watts coming into the club. She shows up and Eric Stoltz says that he's waiting for Amanda. And she's like on a school night. And she's like, oh, did she say she'd be here? And Eric Stoltz is like, she'll be here. And this is what I didn't understand. They never really set up that Eric Stoltz was going to see her tonight. And so I don't know if Eric Stoltz, like if there's a scene that we didn't see where like he invites her to the club and she says maybe. Or, like, was he actually expecting her? Or, like, what What was... Yeah, we never saw, like, this transpire between them. This was something that I was confused about, too. Yeah, and then, like, I, I, I guess I really wanted the payoff of this scene to be, like, Watts walks out, and then Amanda Jones walks in, and Eric Stoltz is, like, happy, so he kind of forgets that the whole thing with Watts just happened. Like, that would have made things a little clearer... But then I think it has to all lead up to the date. Like everything between them has to happen at the date. 
So it makes me feel like he gave her an open invite and she was just not even going to think about it. Yeah, that makes sense. But who knows? So um, Watts doubts that Miss Amanda Jones is going to come out because this place really isn't her vibe. And you can kind of tell, like, these aren't necessarily the, the, the crowd that she runs with. Um, don't come here and they're not the ones on the dance floor. So Watts doesn't think yeah. she's coming. Uh, and she even says like, oh, did she say she'd be here? And Eric Stoltz says, not in those words. Watts is like, maybe she doesn't like you as much as you think. And Eric Stoltz like really doesn't want this reality check. Like, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe Miss Amanda Jones doesn't even know you. Um, <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> and so Watts looks at him and she's like, do you miss me? Do you miss being around me? And Eric Stoltz is like, this isn't third grade anymore. And Watts looks at him and says, like, she doesn't love you. And it's an interesting, like, zero to 60 thing to say. Because she's basically saying, like, she doesn't love you. I do. Yeah. And he's still not really getting it or seeing it. And Watts is basically crying at this point. And she says, like, you know, I think we'd get along better if we didn't spend so much time together. I'm driving you crazy and you're driving me crazy. And I'd rather have you not see me and think good things about me than see me and hate me. I can't afford for you to hate me. This is such a hard scene for me. And she, yeah, she's really upset because, like, he's really her only friend. Like, she's even said in the past, like, her parents really don't bug her about stuff the way Keith's do. And she sees it as, like, well, at least your parents care about you. Yeah. I like what nobody's jumping down Watts's throat trying to ask her about her future. Nobody cares about her like that. At least that's how she feels. Um, and she even says, like, the only thing that matters to me in this world is me and my drums and you. And he just kind of sits there and he doesn't know what to say to her. And like, obviously, he doesn't want to stop being friends, but his silence kind of seems like agreement in that moment. Like, he's. He's hearing her, and he's thinking, like, maybe that's a good point. Because, obviously, he doesn't like the things that she's been saying anyway. All talking yeah. down about Miss Amanda Jones. Like, he doesn't want that negativity in his life. Kind of already on a defense, if you will. Yeah, so so throughout this whole scene, and then she finally, like, once she tells him all that, she ends up leaving. And this is what was kind of also frustrating. She starts to leave. She clearly can't, like storm out because she has to get through this crowd of people and Eric Stoltz calls out to her and she turns around and stops and he doesn't approach her he doesn't physically go after her like she just gives him a look and then keeps going and he lets her leave and it's like why did you call out to her what were you gonna say it's like in that moment he may have had an inkling or realization but it wasn't big enough for him to actually act on or do anything. And it's so frustrating. That was the moment where he really needed to like get up and look her face to face and have a conversation with her and tell her like, I want you in my life, but I also want this other person in my life and I need you to understand. You know, like there was a way to do it. Yeah. There was a way to do it. And I think he was just so zeroed in on and focused on Miss Amanda Jones and all the possibilities that were going to come with that, that like he wasn't realizing like the person he was hurting was right in front of him. Mm -hmm. So oh, it's, it, you're right. It's a very difficult scene. She's so honest and, 
and he has a hard time hearing it as one does. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it's something that you don't want to accept or you're not ready to accept. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. So throughout that entire scene, the March Violets were performing their song, Turn to the Sky. Give me one second. I have to burp. <laughs> oh, oh, that was a good one. Excuse me. Sorry, hon. I hope you turned your volume down for that. You are totally fine. Any hooters. So the March Violets have been together since winter 1981. Yes, I do say have been together. They are still together. The OG founding members include Tom Ashton on guitar, Rosie Garland on vocals, Simon... Denbig on vocals and Lawrence Elliott on bass. At the time, they were using a drum machine for percussion. That's cool. So that's interesting. They all met at Leeds University. Cleo Murray joined the band in winter 1983 as the second female vocalist before Rosie quit. When the band signed to London Records, Andy Tolson joined the group as their drummer. And it was under this label that they released Turn to the Sky, as well as released the Rolling Stones cover of Miss Amanda Jones. (laughs) By now, they had transitioned from post-punk to pop, and the two aforementioned songs were included on the Some Kind of Wonderful soundtrack, of course. Mm -hmm. And yes, that is the band performing their song in the film. Unfortunately, the year that this movie was released... They did break up just a few months out, but in October of 2010, they reunited to make music, and they have randomly been releasing material ever since. That's so cool. It is super cool. I mean, it's it's interesting that, like, typically in the 80s, you know, there's, like, the one-hit wonder bands, like Valley Girl, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not with you. You know, like, you think of songs like that like that one defining song, and then you really can't name any of the other songs by the band. Mm-hmm. And well, the thing is, like, a lot of those bands dissolve, but, like, this band is still together. So I'm surprised that we don't hear more about this band the way we hear about the band that did the Breakfast Club song and, you know, right. the band. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So it's it's interesting how generally overlooked this entire film and the music mm-hmm. in it was. Agreed. So it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, But it does also kind of feel like you stumble upon a little gem. Right? When you watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like you're you're in on a secret. Yes. I'm glad you at least see see that. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. It's it's kind of like this movie was kind of tucked away in the corner and you find it when you're looking in the attic. Yeah. Okay. See, I love that. (laughs) So we get a scene in the mall where Laura, Eric Stoltz's little sister, she overhears Hardy's plan. And what his idea is is to get Amanda Jones to bring Eric Stoltz to his house at the party so that he and his friends can rough him up. Mm -hmm. And Laura hears this, and she runs all the way home, and she tells Eric Stoltz, like, yeah, she's just using you so that she can get you to Hardy's house, and they're going to beat you up. And he knows that she's serious. Like, she's not bullshitting. And so he realizes, like, everything Watts said was true. And he feels bad enough to walk to her house and he goes inside and, and she's drumming and, um, 
he's like, oh, your brothers don't mind you drumming? She's like, they don't, I didn't ask. And he ends up telling her, like, what he found out. And he tells her, like, I'm still going to go on with the date. And she's like, are you like crazy? Like, why? Do you want to become, like, a meatbag? And he's like, no, like, if he's going to get me, then he's going to get me. Like, it doesn't have to be at the party. He'll beat me up at school. He'll beat me up after school. He'll follow me. Like, he's basically saying, like, if Hardy's going to come at me, I might as well just, like, see what happens. Right. Or, like, take it head on, you know? Exactly. Like, he's he wants to stand up to him. He's tired of cowering to him. He's tired of, you know, the low class, high class versus thing. Like, he's done. Like, he's done with Hardy's bullshit. And um, Watts doesn't feel great about it, but she understands why he's going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so they end up lying down in uh, her bed. And she ends up saying, like, it's better to swallow pride than blood. And he says, I don't think that you believe that at all. And so, like, you can tell, like, she really doesn't want him to get hurt. Yeah. And she, and, you know, going on with the date means going out with Miss Amanda Jones, and she doesn't want that either. So it's just, it's a big no for her. She's not about it. Yep, just all around, just, like, not a fan. Doesn't want to see him get hurt in any way, shape, or form. Right, right. And, I mean, she loves him, so. Yeah. And so they end up lying in her bed together, and he says, um, you know, they apologize to each other for being, like, on edge and tense with each other. And he says, you always hurt the ones you love. And she says, so when are you beating the shit out of Amanda Jones? <laughs> Which is kind of funny. And then, like, we get a close-up on Watts. And you can tell, like, she's conflicted. Like, she knows what she wants to tell him, but she won't say it. And that's hard yeah. to watch, too. Yeah, she can't find that. It is so hard to watch. It's like you want to say it for her. Almost like, you know, when you watch movies and you like kind of, you know, blush for them or you grimace during like embarrassing scenes, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that for me in this movie. And, uh, and, and I think we've all been there. We've all been lying next to or sitting next to or in touch with someone that like, Oh, if all the walls were down and I could tell you the truth, it would be so different. Mm-hmm. Everybody has that with someone or has had that with someone at some point. And if you say you haven't, you're lying. You're lying. Any hooters. So Eric Stoltz, who has been getting harassed by his dad about college, takes his entire life savings and buys Miss Amanda Jones an expensive pair of earrings that Watts helps him pick out. And he doesn't tell his dad that he does this because obviously his dad is going to murder him. Yeah. But uh, him and Watts, you know, go off and do this thing together. And then this next scene is actually the one that was featured in He's Just Not That Into You. Mm -hmm. And it features another song that I have chosen, which is She Loves Me by Stephen Duffy. So we're back at the mechanic shop. Uh, Watts is hanging out with Eric Stoltz and he's working on cars and we haven't heard the plan for the date, but we know that the arrangement has been made. And so she's going to be helping him out with this date somehow. And she asks, like, what are y'all going to talk about? And he's like, well, I don't know, whatever comes to mind. And she's like, well, don't you want to plan it out? And he's like, well, I'm going to go with my instincts. And she's like, what if she wants you to kiss her? 
And he says, then I guess I'll have to kiss her. And she says, and this is the part that Jennifer Goodwin is watching. And she says, Amanda Jones is no minor leaguer who will be swept off her feet at the touch of your amateur lips. <laughs> Watts says that he should be sure that he can deliver a kiss that kills. And he's like, well, how do I know that I can do that? And she's like, well, if you say that you can, you probably can. I love it. <laughs> so you can kind of tell she's kind of egging him on to be like, you know, yeah, we know what she's doing. Yeah. <laughs> he starts to get unsure of himself because of what she's saying and she's being really sly about it. And then she says, I was just going to work on it with you, but if you're comfortable. And he was like, well, how are you going to work on it with me? And she says, pretend I'm a girl and he looks at her and she's like pretend I'm Amanda and so he comes up to her and she's like uh telling him what to do with his hands and she's like they go on her hips always on the hips and she's like look into my eyes and he's like how do you know this and she's like I watch a lot of tv and she's like oh she'll probably do this and she puts her arms around the back of his neck and they kiss and it's interesting that, like, the kiss goes on as long as it does. And, like, we see his hand on her waist and he kind of starts to grip her harder. It's intimate. It's, it's an intimate moment. It's not just a friend teaching someone to kiss. Like, it's a kiss. She wraps her leg around him. And so it, it really gets, like, they're getting close. They're intertwined, basically. Yeah. And then she all of a sudden shoves him off and he kind of laughs at her. She's like, what? She's like, we're good. You're cool. Tutorial's over. And <laughs> he's like, you're blushing. And she really is. Like, her face is red. Yeah. And, and she's like, oh, you know, whatever. And she runs off. And uh, then she says something like, I don't know if I'm rich enough to be your friend. And he's like, uh, he's like, I'm sorry. Like, he's apologizing for, like, teasing her. She's clearly a little embarrassed, and he says, like, I'll see you tonight. And it's a, it's a cute scene with a really good song playing behind it. <laughs> it's a really cute scene, and it's another one where you kind of get that, like, like butterflies in your stomach, like, moment, even though it's not you, you know? This song was by Stephen Duffy, who uh, you may be more familiar with in Duran Duran. Oh, cool. <laughs> he was born May 30th, 1960 in Birmingham, England. He is a singer and songwriter who also plays guitar, bass, drums, and keyboard. However, there's no mention of this movie on his Wikipedia page, which I found very interesting because this is a pivotal scene. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, really underrated, barely even mentioned. Like, do people even know this movie exists? Did you guys know this movie existed before Misa and I talked about it? Okay, I'm putting a poll on Instagram stories. Watch Here out for it. Here we go. Yes. Asking a hard-pressed question. I'm about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stephen Duffy, John Taylor, and Nick Rhodes formed Duran Duran while they were attending university together. And Stephen Duffy has also founded and been a member of other bands such as Tintin and the Lilac Theme. According to the timeline of his career, this song was featured in this film while he was with the Lilac Theme. 
1986, he released a 40-minute house album under the name Dr. Calculus. In 1999, when he stumbled upon some Duran Duran music and storage, he and Nick Rhodes ended up collaborating by re-recording those songs with late 70s instrumentation. They released the album entitled Dark Circles under the name The Devils. I didn't know that. In addition to these groups he's been a part of, Stephen Duffy has also enjoyed a solo career starting in 1993. Aside from his own music and work, Stephen Duffy has helped write hit songs for musicians like Robbie Williams and Bare Naked Ladies. What? Yes, indeed. No way. Super cool. Indeed. Yeah. So he's lending his mind to music one way or another these days. That is so cool. Right. Like, who knew Bare Naked Ladies had a connection to some kind of wonderful? Never would have in my entire life placed money on that. So funny. (laughs) It's so fucking random, the world of music. Yes, I love it. (laughs) It's awesome. So, immediately after that scene, everybody's getting ready for the date. Watts is getting ready. Miss Amanda Jones is getting ready. And Miss Amanda Jones by the Rolling Stones is playing. Uh, which is Uh an honorable mention. And Keith, this is what's interesting. Apparently this song also exists in the universe because Keith is singing this song in the shower. (laughs) Yeah. So Miss Amanda Jones legit does have a theme song because everybody seems to know the song. And I guess the Rolling Stones exist in this timeline. So that's cool. They sure do. Um, (laughs) But then... Right when Keith is, like, almost done with his shower, his dad comes in and interrupts, and he finds out that he, like, swiped all that money up. And Keith says, like, it's gone. I'm not putting it back in. It's over. I don't want to go to college. You want me to go to college. I don't fit in. I, you know, da 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 Everyone thinks I'm nothing. And he he tells him, like, you know, tonight there's a girl, and she's going out with me. Like, she could have anyone she wants, and she's going out with me. And, like, he talks about, like, he brings up, like, the social situation at school and how, like, he really doesn't fit in. And the dad was like, oh, I had no idea that you were struggling like this. And so, you know, Keith promises, like, I'll replace the money, but just please trust me that I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And so the dad kind of lets him off. And so we hear Turn to the Sky again. Watts is outside with the car, and she gets out, and she opens the door for Eric Stoltz. She takes his hand and she kisses it, (laughs) which is kind of cute. It's adorable. And he looks at her and he's like, I think you look tremendous. (laughs) And it's just, it's adorable, really. Um, So he goes on this date with Miss Amanda Jones and he really goes all out. He takes her to a fancy restaurant. He takes her to a museum after hours, thanks to the bully's dad, who is security guard. And... Poor Watts just kind of like she's either sitting in the car waiting for them to be done or she's sitting in the audience of the Hollywood Bowl while him and Miss Amanda Jones are sitting on stage kissing, which is horrifying. And I'm just like, man, that sucks. Like, like and him and Miss Amanda Jones have a good conversation because he kind of confronts her and calls her on her bullshit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he says, like, oh, were you using me? And she admits that she was. And he was like, well, you either – she was like, well, I kind of use you. He's like, no, you either use someone or you don't. It's pretty intense. Like, he – I actually really like him in this scene because he starts to show a little bit more of, like, aggression. And, like, he stands up for himself like he said he would. Yeah. Like, he needed that moment with his dad, too, to kind of give him the ammunition, you know? 
Like, I can do this. I can stand up to people. Yes. And so, like, tonight, Keith's not taking any shit. And so, overall, the date goes well. But, of course, it's hurting Watts to be there and to see them. And so, finally, the last stop on the date is Hardy's house. And they get there. And she wishes him luck. And they walk in. And the confrontation's a little odd because everyone's watching. And, you know, they grab Eric Stoltz and they talk shit to him. And he just talks shit right back. And before things kind of get intense, the bullies show up. And obviously they're on Eric Stoltz's side now because they're friends, because mm-hmm. of detention. Yeah. So the bully's like, oh, no, we're, we're here to make sure everyone's on their best behavior or whatever. And so, like, Hardy doesn't want any part of it because he knows the bullies will fuck him up. And he's like, oh, this is my house and da 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 And they were like, okay, well, you know. So they were, they were, like, there to maintain order. And so Eric Stoltz gets off without a scratch. Amanda Jones gives Hardy a good slap or two, just like I asked for. Thank you, Miss Amanda Jones. (laughs) Finally. Oh, my God. He deserves so much more than that. He deserved her back heel in his temple all the way through to the other side. Oh, for sure. Or kicking the balls, too. What a dick. What a dick. Um, And so... After the confrontation, Miss Amanda Jones and Eric Stoltz go outside and Watts is just kind of standing there and seeing her there standing alone makes Eric Stoltz realize like she's the one who was in love with him all along. She's the one who accepted him for who he was. She's the one who like gets him. And so Miss Amanda Jones immediately telegraphs this and she's like, you know how I said I'd rather be with someone for the wrong reasons than alone for the right ones. Well, I'd rather be right. And she takes the earrings off that Keith gave her and says, like, maybe you should give them to someone else. And so, like, you know, at this point, Watts was already walking. She went ahead and gave them the keys. And she's like, y'all go ahead. I'm going to walk home. And she's already basically down the block. (laughs) Yeah. And Eric Stoltz runs after her. He's calling her name. And she's crying. And he goes up to her and they kiss and he gives her the earrings and she puts them on and she says like, she admits like, I did want them, you know, but he's like, oh, you knew that you would get them. You knew that they would be yours. She's like, no, I didn't know. I wanted them, but I didn't know. And so they start walking down the street together and it's so cute. Eric Stoltz. Oh, it's adorable. She says, so how do I look? <laughs> and he says, you look good wearing my future. And it's lines like those that just, I know they're far-fetched. And I know that they, like, I, I, I watched this movie for the first time, like, after a heartbreak. And, um... This was just like, why can't this be my life? Like, going through hardships, but finding that silver lining after, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with someone who was just so uh, adorable and amazing. He was so sweet. Oh, I couldn't mm-hmm. stand it. I couldn't stand it. It was so fucking sweet. I'm telling you, man, every now and then a redhead just crosses my radar, and I'm just like, swing. And we're here for it. Oh, he's so cute. He's so cute. Um, 
So I don't have a whole lot of fun facts about this. I have one unfun fact, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> of course, we know that John Hughes had a really good working relationship with Molly Ringwald. And um, I think maybe another reason why this movie may not have a good rep is because this is part of the reason why that working relationship ended. Gosh, you. Uh, apparently, Molly Ringwald was a contender for... I, I've... Now that I I didn't write it down because I've I've been told this a couple of times. So like I believe that she was up for the part of Watts, oh. or like they wanted her for Watts. Uh, ironically, which she would she would not be playing the Claire type this time, hmm. so that hey, she would be more like the Andy type. But from what I understand, they wanted her to play Watts, and she said no, and John Hughes wasn't crazy about that answer and so after that they did not work together again but yeah so I I just googled it just to make sure and it turns out like Molly Ringwald said that she declined it because she felt like the script wasn't strong enough Mm -hmm. and it it was too much of a derivative of the other films that she already made with John and you know what as much as I love Molly um I I love Leah Thompson as his character like I feel like Molly had, um, since she'd done those other movies, like, Leah had kind of more, like, a softness, I guess. Like, a a different quality that she brought to these movies. Because I will agree with Molly, a lot of these teen 80 movies were super similar in the plot, you know? We kind of had that triangle, high school, you know, one of them is, you know, preppy, whatever. Um, and even though I love Molly in the movies that she's in, I can't imagine her in this one, but I can definitely, I can see why Molly, you know, and support her for turning it down. So, yeah, I, I mean, at that point you have to think like that would have been her fourth collab with John Hughes. I'm sure she wanted to do different stuff. Yeah. You know, something, a different flavor, you know, that she did not like being typecasted. Yeah. And I, 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 I can totally agree with that. And, you know, I feel like she was often typecasted. So I can I can agree why she wanted to do that. So so this movie, of course, is not a John Hughes directed, but rather Howard Deutsch. And he also directed Pretty in Pink, which John Hughes wrote. John Hughes is actually the one who offered him the director spot for this movie. So in a way, John Hughes mm-hmm. kind of handpicked him to take the reins on it. Howard Deutsch has also directed Getting Even with Dad, The Odd Couple Part 2, The Whole Ten Yards, and My Best Friend's Girl. That will give you an idea for who he is. Um, And it turns out that Leah Thompson, who plays Miss Amanda Jones, was at the time engaged to Dennis Quaid. Oh, I forgot about that. Yes, they were engaged, and then when Leah Thompson was playing Miss Amanda Jones in this movie, her and Howard Deutsch fell in love, and they have been married since 1989. And that's how you do it in film industry, guys. That's amazing. Pretty freaking cool. So, with that said, that's my coverage of Some Kind of Wonderful from 1987, directed by Howard Deutsch, written by John Hughes, starring the adorable Eric Stoltz. It's worth a watch, guys. I will say that. Yay! Oh, you did so good, Misa. I love it. Oh, thanks. I know it's 
This one was a little more bare bone just because uh, the info was a little limited and the sources weren't exactly 100% verified. So I was reluctant to like what info I would pull and what I wouldn't. Right. Um, but like overall, I think that this movie in general kind of got overlooked. It, it's not the kind of movie that you're going to see a steel book 40th anniversary edition of. You're not going to get a, a platinum soundtrack with, you know, dialogue from the film between the track. This isn't that kind of movie, which is a little unfortunate, but I can see why this is like super special in the hearts of some. So that's cool. AKA Frankie. AKA Frankie. <laughs> Woohoo! Yay! Oh, this was so fun. Yeah, this was a good time. I'm glad that we were finally able to sit down and record. And on a Saturday, and we didn't have very many issues. I know. Way to go, Zencaster. You heard our complaints. Yay. Well, guys, we know we've been away for a while. Thank you again for your patience. Um, we do have a lot of really cool stuff coming up in the future. Um, some stuff that Misa and I have to hammer out some details. And it's it's going to be a super exciting future. Uh, rest of 2022, hopefully, for Soundtrack City. Be sure to follow the Instagram at Hey Soundtrack City. Now that we are active audibly, I will try to be more active social medially. Um, so definitely keep an eye out for some news and updates and some uh, some things that we're going to be promoting over the next few weeks. Super exciting if you're in the Houston mm-hmm. area. Yes. Oh, it has been a blast, guys. Thank you again. We appreciate each and every one of you. I'm Frankie. And I'm Misa. Bye.